This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast discussing all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I'm here today, Peter Gardet, to talk about ESG and clean tech investment in 2023. Peter, how are you? Good, Hill. How's it going? It's going well. And Peter, this is the, or this will be the 100th episode of Energy Sense. So, that's a real star, I suppose, in your cap or our caps. Yeah, we've made congratulations. Full so, uh, century. Yeah, so thank you for, for joining me. And this is also the first episode of 2023. We took a little bit of a break after December holidays, and we're going to try to do a few things differently this year. We wanted to get started with very much the same format that we've been doing things, and people will recognize you from episodes of the past and hopefully episodes of the future. So we'll see how this goes. But the idea here today is to kind of frame, hopefully, some of our thinking for 2023 around ESG, environmental social governance, and seemed from at least where I said that ESG became somewhat of a less popular topic throughout 2022. I don't know if you were watching some of the deal book emails throughout Davos, but there was you know I think there was one article about one executive quoted as saying, "I hope ESG just goes away." And a lot of the asset managers were being accused of greenwashing and generating more fees and generating green directed activities or investments. And so what seemed to have a lot of momentum for the the quote unquote good reasons of environmental, social and governance, equity, inclusion, all the other things has somewhat of a tarnish going into it as climate directed finance and the IRA and other things are really taking off. In 2023, so, so we seem to be at somewhat of a crossroads, at least a crossroads of perception. So I wanted to get your thoughts, I guess, first on the the, the changing perception or, or views of ESG, and, and then as we keep talking, how that may influence or perhaps not influence at all the environmental effects of clean technology and energy. Sure. Yeah. Clearly, ESG as a concept has evolved. Right. We're moving. I think a lot of this controversy is coming around at this time, both within the capital and financial markets and among firms that are in it, but also out kind of in the broader community, because we're at this kind of crucial stage where we're moving from allocation to deployment. So a lot of the when this trend towards ESG or when ESG began to really pick up over the last four or five years was when pension funds, 401k operators, the big standard operators of capital who collect and you know, manage our retirements and so on noticed that if they attached the word, the term ESG or environmental or social or governance to a fund, 
it would increase participation at the retail level. People like you and I putting money into our 401k were more likely to put money into a fund labeled ESG and were more likely to increase our overall allocation to retirement if we felt like fund was presenting itself in a way that it was attuned to or aligned with a perception of risk that's out there around environmental, social, and governance issues. That same trend came along at a time when the big capital allocators at the institutional side were starting to notice climate risk make its way into their world. So via insurance products, they started looking at stranding risk from physical climate change, all of these new concepts of risk, these new conceptions of risk that were coming about in part because for the first time, thanks to satellites and internet, the internet of things, you know, connected devices, we have so much more information. We're so much more capable of tracking what we're doing to the world around us as we undertake investing. And those that data that was being produced began to be correlated to investments through the ESG process. But a lot of that initial stuff was very haphazard, and a lot mm-hmm. of it was uh, marketing, was labeling. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that. But now that we've collected all of this money and put it into our 401ks or institutions have raised dozens and dozens of funds that are labeled as environmental or have very strict net zero standards written into their fund mandates, now they have to spend this money somewhere. They have to actually go out and invest it. And that was always going to be the difficult part because trying to invest on two axes at the same time is really hard. You're not only investing from a returns perspective, I now have to manage my returns so that they meet my target and always exceed the benchmark. But I also have to take account of the impact I'm having in the world as much because it's a risk factor for those in, you know, it's supposed to correlate to the return piece as it is because I've signed up now. I've said, I am an impact fund and I did that so that I could get more allocation. The cost of having received that allocation is now that I have to pay attention to what's going on. And so that natural struggle as we try to put this money into real steel in the ground, real power plants, real roads, real companies, and have to match up those two things, you know, returns with kind of the impact in the world, it was always going to be a difficult moment, and and here we are. What I I feel like, and I'll say feel because I don't have any data to support this opinion, but with Ukraine conflict, that a lot of the shifts seem to, to to coincide with that, where the goals for clean energy and low carbon investment never went anywhere, but the the balance of energy security and affordability, what many are calling the energy trilemma, became more difficult. That that all of a sudden. Europe needed to secure natural gas in order to fire is to to create electricity and you couldn't wait for solar or you couldn't get nuclear back online fast enough and that seemed to be a real catalyst that that then at least from where I sit influenced the whole ESG narrative in ways completely unexpected. Yeah, I would argue that we are still, we still don't really understand the Ukraine crisis yet. A few months ago, I sat in meetings where large uh, private equity investors told me that Europe was going to starve 
this mm -hmm. winter that the, they were going to make peace with Putin because they couldn't live without Russian natural gas. And that's clearly been very far from the case. And I would argue that that is in part because they got such a jump on energy transition. I mean, you could view the entire sort of ecosystem of events that went into Putin's decision to invade Ukraine as having a lot of climate drivers and energy transition vectors in them, if you were to look at it a certain way. So I think it were early days on that. I will I think what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine was that it kind of got was the first test of a very tidy narrative that was always going to fall apart. This idea that we were going to be able to switch out the entire world's built energy infrastructure quickly, painlessly, cheaply, clearly never going to happen if you've worked in any of these markets. It was always going to be painful, expensive up front, even if the efficiency pays off over time. It was always going to be politically difficult. I would argue that in a way you would rather, if we're not going to end up in a world where everything is peaceful and everyone agrees all the time, I would rather that these disagreements be happening around the kinds of technologies that are clearly going to dominate the future rather than that they'd be happening around legacy infrastructure that's aging. So we should be talking about how to put new stuff into place. And as long as we're doing that, I think it's fine to evaluate the trade-offs of that and even to disagree about those and to come to compromise agreements. And ESG is, is part of that. It's one of the vectors along which capital is going to move along which results will be tested. Even if you look at the words that are behind ESG, right, environmental, social governance, this is essentially everything. I mean, like, you should already be doing governance anyway. You are part of a society and an environment exists. But so I've been trying to play with all of these, like, cute other way acronyms you could use. And for me, in the year since the invasion, uh, you have seen this kind of like efficiency, standardization, and globalization become the ESG of 2023, to coin a phrase. The efficiency of capital, but also the efficiency of the underlying energy technology, the efficiency of economies. Standardization around climate reporting is going to be a huge issue in 2023. And globalization, I mean, a lot of people argue that in some ways, the isolating of Russia after the invasion of Ukraine is a step away from globalization, mm -hmm. and it's hard to argue that the world is getting more globalized. But I would argue that globalization is a huge part of what we're talking about, this impression that all the spending and manufacturing left what we call the, the developed world and went to China or other countries, and that it's now there are all of these incentives to try and bring it, quote unquote, back. I think taken and back and all of these words give the wrong impression. We're moving forward into a new globalization, a new kind of supply map that will look different from the old, but it's not as though the United States is going to become an autarkic economy and we're all just like never going to import anything again. Right. These are super globalized supply chains that will remain so. And do you think, I know ESG, and you rightly point out, is much bigger than energy. And a lot of the, the early activities or priorities were on those, I'll say easier to execute ideas of 
finding more diversity at the board level, doing things that, that you can do pretty quickly with, with, with a quick decision and, and with people that are available and capable to, to, to do it. It's harder to build a giant project that takes five years to, to come online and requires a lot more funding to do so. As we're thinking specifically around energy, has ESG expanded, ESG tolerance maybe is a way to say it, uh, expanded to include more than, than just quote unquote clean technologies? I think about gas, which depending on the day and the person you talk to is a low carbon alternative to coal. Or I think about nuclear that really wasn't on anybody's mind 12 months ago. And you had the big deal with Brookfield and Westinghouse. You had, uh, I think, Germany or one of the European countries is putting money to, maybe it was France, to nuclear for the first time in a long time. These aren't quick fixes, but but they seem to have more tolerance, if not support. Yeah, so I think the important thing for financials and capital markets is they look at this energy transition and ESG as part of a kind of climate response altogether, is they really want to know what kind of risk they're buying. And it's clear that under the previous architecture framework of financial instruments and ways you go about financing projects, they weren't accounting for all the risk. There is risk that simply doesn't show up on a accounting and statement of accounts. And so that kind of became wrapped up in all of this ESG risk that you could somehow even without necessarily defining it, diminish over time by investing in some series of approved projects. None of this was ever made clear. It was all very much vibes. And if we're moving to a time when it becomes clear which kinds of projects are actually going to meaningfully reduce your risk along these vectors, then that's something that investors will be able to make that trade-off. And that, to me, is the important thing. I think over time, it's clear to see where the world is going, but it's also, you know, I'm open to new information as well, and the market itself should be and is fundamentally open to new information. And that new information, if it comes along for some reason or another, natural gas is something that is better than the alternative, in any individual investment decision. And it is explicitly managing, whoever invests in that is explicitly managing their exposure to climate risk, ESG risk in some way. I don't see any reason why that's a non-fundable investment, an uninvestable thing. Mm -hmm. You're taking on risk when you do that. And if that's risk you want to buy, you should be allowed to go ahead and buy it. But to argue that there, you shouldn't look at the ESG part of it because you might, it might never come to pass isn't really like an effective investment strategy either. So how do you think, I mean, given some of what we've just talked about, and, and I, I saw this weekend that of the I think it was 600 drill ships or offshore drilling activity or equipment available. It, 90% is under contract or, or working right now. So, and these are long lead time fossil fuel projects that, that are competing for capital in theory with capital that would otherwise be directed to more ESG narrowed clean tech, whether that be solar or wind or hydrogen or whatever. Does clean tech have a harder time competing for capital? because of the perceptions around the shifting perceptions in ESG this year? 
At the margin, it would make sense to argue that. I haven't seen any real evidence for it. I think that that's partially because what we're seeing is less a, in absolute terms, an allocation of capital away from other parts of the economy into energy infrastructure. So whether it be away from consumer tech, Mm -hmm. a lot of consumer plays, whether it be away from things that are very linked to inflation and exposed investments and into energy. And a lot of that is states. I mean, a lot of that, you look at the tens of billions of euros in state aid that have come from in Europe for their crisis. There's been a lot of aid in in most parts of the world. The Inflation Reduction Act is part of the kind of Biden trifecta in the United States. There's a lot of money sloshing around in the energy sector overall. So some of it has gone to legacy fossil fuels in a way that will, on an allocation percentage basis, will look really different from 2021. At the same time, it would be impossible to argue that clean tech is being starved of capital. There's more than enough money around, and some of it's government money, some of it is matching private money. A lot of it, frankly, is private equity money. They got raised over the last couple of years and never deployed. I think the more interesting question for me in the coming year will be, with all of this upfront investment kind of going into all of these projects, something is going to end up being mispriced, right? So some Mm -hmm. of these projects won't work in the future. I wonder what those will be. Will that be green hydrogen, which is big, unproven, untested, and yet receiving extremely high support from the Inflation Reduction Act? Will it be offshore drilling platforms that simply get stranded in 10 years. Like uh, it's, it'll be a very interesting shakeout. I think we're at a point where we're finally building a lot of stuff that we needed mm-hmm. to build. And the question will be uh, how our reevaluation of risk matches with the actual future that unfolds. So we're talking in January 23, and as we're thinking about the, the next 11, 12 months, uh, and for whatever reason, it's people like us tend to define things by calendar years, which I'm not sure exactly why, but but if we're thinking about the next calendar year, what, what are some of the things specific to clean tech that, that we should really be paying attention to and watch, watching? You, you mentioned the IRA, which is obviously the big one. Can we go into a little bit more detail on what about the IRA and, and or outside of the IRA? I mean, one of the other things to come out of news a couple weeks ago was people are saying, don't criticize the IRA as protectionism, copy it, that everyone needs to have their own IRA. Yeah, so the IRA is a giant piece of legislation, and it is transformative in a lot of ways. About half of it goes into, we can divide it roughly in half, half of it goes into what we can think of as debt, which looks like a grant, so traditional government financing funding. About half of it is in the form of tax policy. The most vital piece of that tax policy that's different is the way that tax credits are treated. So right now, in order to finance something using existing incentives in the tax code, you have to build a quite complicated tax equity structure. I'm not going to bore everyone with what that is, although I think it's fascinating. The difference here is that there will be a traded financial instrument that is really not that different from anything else the U.S. Treasury puts out. So you're going to get a tax 
credit that is tradable, mm -hmm. uh, an institutional, a personal retail level, you'll be able to buy tax credits that you can then use and you'll be able to buy them at some kind of discount or I've heard people argue that there will be a premium on them. I'm not sure about that argument, but that tax credit market it, to me, that could be transformative for this whole sector because it brings a lot more money in, in the same way that securitization of debt in the, the 80s and 90s led to the way we think about collateralized debt today. So that's a multi-trillion dollar market. I think it, how it's big, not possible that this could Sorry, I'm interrupting, but how, if, we, if we're, we, we've talked about tax equity, you and I, not, not on recording, but we've talked about it on the sidelines before. How big is this? You talk about it being tradable. How big is it today? And does the IRA double it, triple it? I mean, it, it seems like an exponential change relative to where we are. And are we already at a at a big spot or are we at a small spot? So tax equity today, which is these kind of complicated structures that banks do, is capped at about $20 billion. It's not capped necessarily by legislation, but by investor appetite. There's only so much money tax exposure that you can channel through those funds in order to make them work. So it comes to about $20 billion in the United States. You know, this is U.S. tax exposure that gets defrayed each year under existing policy. That amount conceivably could go up or down, but it's hard to imagine it's shifting significantly without further changes in the tax code that would would create a lot more appetite. The tax credit piece, the tradable tax credit piece that we're talking about, I've heard really remarkable forecasts for this. Right now, the number is essentially zero. You can't really trade these th that way right now. Once the IRS issues its guidance, we're off to the races. I know that funds are already preparing for this, and I've heard numbers as high as $800 billion in a total market size, given just where projects are today. So that's over from now till 2032. So we have okay. a nine-year period here to build an $800 billion market. I don't see that as being at all unrealistic. I mean, just if you look at the history of previous instrumentation innovations like that, if they work, they work. Mm -hmm. If they don't work, we could be having the same conversation in two years from now and be like, wow, that was an interesting. <laughs> you know, that was cool. But if they work, it should take off quickly because it's a very appealing instrument and it correlates extremely well to what it needs to be done. If we're going to build a bunch of new infrastructure and we're going to do it through the, the federal budget, mm -hmm. kind of federal accounts, that's that's where it would work. So do I think it would be super interesting. Do you see it linear or do you see it slow to, to build and then getting steep quickly? Is anything linear, really? I mean, in retrospect, it might look linear. I think there will be a huge pop at the front. Just okay. I hear so many banks are already out talking to big corporates about participating in this market. And there have mm -hmm. already been a number of projects, including one in uh, Southern California just the other day, $450 million of tax credit capacity attached to that solar project. So this is like this serious stuff already happening in anticipation of the IRS issuing its regulation. And as soon as they have finalized that, I expect it to, to pick up really substantially. A big boom like that implies a bust, right? So mm -hmm. it's going to come through. There's going to be a bunch of pre-existing 
business to work off. My, but from what I hear, some of these tax desks at banks that are trying to handle this have their biggest limitation is people. Like they simply don't have enough tax experts to write the documentation fast mm-hmm. enough. And so they're already telling people, well, we'd love to take yours, but give us 18 months. So big rush at the beginning. I'm sure there will be some kind of like, you know, slowdown once the initial generation of these is processed at that point, probably pick up again. So a busy 18 months ahead of us for sure. And we've been talking about energy in terms of kind of clean tech against or not against, but but alongside conventional energy. And I've heard discussion of, and I'm in Houston, but people putting batteries on drilling rigs to qualify for this tax credit that otherwise they would have used diesel. Are, are there other, you? we've been talking about energy as if it's a narrow conversation. Do, do we see that this energy application moving sideways through what, whether it be upstream or, or through non-energy related industries or, or more and more people going to jump into this for this tax credit piece. Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, that is the idea. That's what they want to happen. Okay. That's what they, it's designed to do. So I, I can't imagine we wouldn't see that. And how about other countries or other parts of the world? That, that, is, is this a uniquely American concept that will be slowly copied, never copied? Is it not uniquely American at all? When it comes to tax credits, uh, Americans do it best. You know, it's <laughs> definitely biggest and the everything is done via the tax code. The European Union has made very clear, increasingly clear, I should say, that they intend to do something extremely similar, like essentially mirroring as a response. They view this as a protectionist act on the part of the United States, and they have been encouraged by the Biden administration to do their own version, and it looks increasingly as though they will. China, you might argue that they were the original innovators in this kind of state capitalism or using the the central government budget she budget as a way to guide investment in this particular way. I think they've already put a fair amount of commitment, financially speaking, behind these kinds of infrastructure buildouts. And between those three, that's that is mm-hmm. the big leaders of the global economy. It's harder to argue for I mean, Japan clearly could do something, South Korea, there are a number of countries that have substantially very large economies that could certainly do more and probably will in their own way. Everyone is sort of doing the same thing, but everyone's way of doing it is different. We are clearly on a subsidy race here, although I think the United States is probably done passing new stuff for now. The European Union will come next and presumably there will be a lot of attempts to sort of match that. Okay, maybe just to, to kind of summarize and, and close for, for, for our first conversation of the year here, that in spite of the changes in perception around ESG, the clean tech or environmentally focused capital, at least within energy, is still very much alive and well, and momentum has accelerated, not decreased or not even solved at all. But this will be a, a big year for investments in low carbon energy that meet with ESG investors' criteria even if other ESG conversations perhaps go sideways. Yeah, I think ESG will will probably turn into two different things, right? There will be the one that's very 
general, the good housekeeping seal of approval kind of thing, where you just say, this group meets reporting standards, ergo, they can call themselves ESG. I think there's a, a lot of precedent for that. The term organic, I know that it has some legal meanings, but it also has a number of people that use it in sort of a generalized way. So the ESG could look like that on the one hand. On the other hand, climate aligned capital, socially aligned capital, capital that takes account of governance risks, that takes account of biodiversity impacts. The underlying investors, the LPs in both public equity and private equity funds, they want to know. They want to know this information. They want this kind of to understand this kind of risk and they want to price it so that they can, you know, better allocate their investments. And that trend is simply not going to reverse, whether you call it ESG or whether you call it something else. Right. Well, thank you, Peter for joining me on this 100th episode of Energy Sense. And I look forward to having another conversation on whether it's 100 and something else or 200 something else. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research, visit us at spglobal.com.